This is a Net News Network headline news brought to you by the Behind the Line podcast, bringing you all the crazy, chaotic news from around the United States and the world. Tune in to what you won't hear the MSN talking about. Well, you may or may not be aware that Bill Gates and the WHO have held another tabletop exercise similar to Event 201, which simulated, well, what later became the COVID-19 pandemic. Just months before that outbreak, Gates and the WHO and several countries held tabletop exercises simulating exactly what went down with covid Now they've held another one called Catastrophic Contagion. This is from the WHO, well no, this is from the actual uh, centerforhealthsecurity.org website, specifically their page called Catastrophic Contagion, a global challenge exercise. It says the John Hopkins Center for Health Security in partnership with WHO and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation conducted catastrophic contagion a pandemic tabletop exercise at the grand challenges annual meeting in brussels belgium on october 23rd 2022 the extraordinary group of participants consisted of 10 current and former health ministers and senior public health officials from Senegal, rwanda nigeria angola liberia singapore india germany as well as bill gates co-chair of the bill and melinda gates foundation The exercise simulated a series of WHO emergency health advisory board meetings addressing a fictional pandemic set in the near future. Participants grappled with how to respond to an epidemic located in one part of the world that then spread rapidly, becoming a pandemic with a higher fatality rate than COVID-19 and disproportionately affecting children and young people. Participants were challenged to make urgent policy decisions with limited information in the face of uncertainty. Each problem and choice had serious health, economic, and social ramifications. Hmm. I wonder if this is what we have to look forward to in the near future. Well, what lessons did they learn from the exercise? In the early days of a major new contagious disease epidemic, there could be a brief window of opportunity to stop it from becoming a pandemic. To successfully contain such an outbreak, decisive and bold action would need to be taken in the face of incomplete data, high scientific uncertainty, and potential political resistance. Thinking through such challenges, preparing in advance to react effectively, and practicing through both high-level tabletop and operational exercises should start now. Hmm. So we're talking about lockdowns, of course. It may seem like all these critical policy decisions have been resolved during the COVID-19 pandemic, but they have not. In the catastrophic contagion simulation, even a group of some of the wisest and most experienced international public health leaders who lived through COVID-19 wrestled with opposing views on whether countries should impose travel restrictions or close schools to try to contain a serious new epidemic that was disproportionately affecting children. The exercise raised a pivotal question. If future pandemics have a much higher lethality than COVID-19, or for example, if they affect predominantly children, would or should countries take different, stronger, earlier measures to contain it, and what are those measures? 
These are not purely public health and scientific decisions. They will be made by leaders in the context of political, economic, and social realities that can be anticipated and considered in advance. Through routine simulations and operational exercises, we can strategically pre prepare for such challenges ahead of time. The more effectively we can reach scientific and practical consensus on the best approach to very hard but foreseeable problems, the more we will be ready in the future to protect lives and nat national economies. Political leaders, in addition to health leaders, must be at the table during exercises to respond effectively during the next pandemic. This is directly from the website I mentioned. It's pretty vague about what they talked about, but goes on to say that we should establish an international network of national public health leaders along the lines of the professionalized pandemic corps referred to in our exercise could substantially help countries save lives and livelihoods during major epidemics and recover more quickly. Pandemic corps, like a little military of pandemic officers, I guess, huh? In future pandemics, we should continue to expect even more major disruptions from misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and who shall determine what that is? The WHO can be globally can be a globally trusted source, and it can share science and public health information widely. But we should not expect it alone to combat or put to a stop the spread of mis and disinformation. Countries need to collaborate to anticipate that threat and prepare to combat it with their own laws and procedures. Just as many types of economic and societal harms can be anticipated and accounted for in pandemic preparedness plans, so too can predictable false or misleading health messaging. Concertedly exploring ways to address this phenomenon on a national level in advance of the pandemic will be crucial to saving lives. Well, unfortunately, Mr. Gates, you guys have already laid the groundwork for mistrust with all the back and forth and ignoring of actual science and just the way the whole COVID thing was handled. Um, you've already laid the groundwork for mistrust. People are not going to believe when this happens again they're just not going to trust what these government health advisors have to say for the most part but the bottom line is i guess they're telegraphing what the next event is going to be so protect your kids and the elderly because apparently that is who is going to be targeted on the next go-round it isn't just coincidence that the event 201 was just a few months before the COVID-19 thing happened. So, who knows how many months we have this time. Documents released as part of a whistleblower complaint against Pfizer revealed that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration turned a blind eye to the fraudulent data that Pfizer submitted alongside its messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccine. An agent with the FDA's Office of Criminal Investigation admitted in an email that the agency knew Pfizer's data was fraudulent but accepted it anyway, using it to emergency authorize then approve Pfizer's COVID injection products.
The OCI operates much like a police force conducting criminal investigations into illegal activities involving FDA-approved products. It then presents cases before the Department of Justice for prosecution. Roughly 200 federal agents hired from the Secret Service, the FBI, and the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigations Unit work at the OCI, which has agents stationed all across the country, as well as some overseas posts. The OCI, which has the same arresting authority as other federal law enforcement agents, was established by former FDA Commissioner David Kessler following the generic drug scandal of the late 1980s. Kessler wanted to crack down on FDA employees for accepting bribes in exchange for drug approvals. What I care about most is restoring the credibility and the integrity of the Food and Drug Administration, Kessler said at the time. And the only way to do that is to focus on strong enforcement. We are going to enforce the law. The email in question from the OCI agent dated March 26, 2021 was leaked as part of a whistleblower Brooke Jackson's complaint against Pfizer. Jackson, as you may recall, blew the lid on Pfizer's fraudulent clinical trials and falsified data. Having worked at FDA, I see it as surprising for many reasons that the agency turned a blind eye to a company's knowing submission of fraudulent data, is what the OCI officer wrote in the discourse. The FDA, he added, likely feared the criticism they undoubtedly would have received for holding up a vaccine which they knew they would eventually approve anyway at the expense of untold lives lost, noting that the agency was also weighing the risk-benefit ratio. It was a decision between telling the truth or telling a lie, though the OCI officer presented it in somewhat more anomalous, politically charged terms. The answer is the simple one, tell the truth, but we know the FDA is reluctant to ever choose that option. There was also mention of AstraZeneca's failed COVID injection and the fraudulent clinical trial data that was used to push that one as well. The company trial's own data and safety monitoring board drew attention to the outdated and potentially misleading data submitted to the FDA, and the OCI officer addressed this matter too. The general public must be able to trust that the clinical results are valid to sell, approve, or take medication, he wrote adding the politically correct caveat that the jab is probably still extremely likely to be safe and effective. My point here is that instead of the regulators protecting the public, in our case, they were complicit in a fraud. He further suggested in a later statement about the matter. At the time, they may have been doing what they believed to be the right thing under extraordinary circumstances, but now they may soon have some explaining to do. Big shock here, huh? Well, I think anybody with any common sense knows that this thing was rushed out regardless because a normal vaccine, under normal circumstances, any other time in history, has taken about 10 years from creation to public distribution, not a matter of months. There are trials that go on. There are tests that go on. It's not just tested on a handful of people or mice. This thing was not tested properly, and it was forced down our throats. And yes, I think there is a lot of explaining to do. General Michael Flynn, former advisor to former President Donald Trump, warned that the digital vaccine ID and the digital currency are coming soon. 
He issued this warning during a recent appearance on the Flyover Conservatives podcast with David and Stacey Whited. Flynn told the couple that Americans have to understand there is a strategic effort going on to take over the country. Given this, he urged the people to pay attention to the New World Order, the World Economic Forum, and the digital currency because they are very real. According to the former Trump advisor, all the member countries of the Group of 20, G20, gave a stamp of approval to the U.S. to become the lead country for the digital vaccine ID. This is in line with Executive Order 14067, signed by incumbent President Joe Biden in March, which the U.S. government implemented starting December 13th. They will implement that in a series of phases. Principally, it will be inside of the government to first, at first to run departments, agencies, activities, and commissions to use digital form of digital currency. But I think it's probably a year to a year and a half away from where we're going to have sort of an element of control over our lives through the way that we spend our money or the type of money that we're able to spend, Flynn said. According to Flynn, the digital currency planned by the U.S. would be similar to China's model. He elaborated that the government will use carbon footprint and environmental social governance scores, ESG, which they will force the American people to have. Corporations will be forced to adopt them, and most individuals are going to end up with some type of digital fingerprint. Flynn said people are going to find that this kind of conversation that they are going to have to find themselves in. It's not going to happen within the next 30 days, but it's going to happen over the next probably two years, certainly the next couple of years here. The digital vaccine card is real. The digital currency is very real. You can go go and read about them online, he said. The former U.S. Army general mentioned that the national security strategy, national military strategy, and national economic strategy will also tell people the direction that America is heading under the current administration. With the topic turning to politics, Flynn noted that the American people now have a lack of confidence in the country's election system while stressing that he is not an election denier. Flynn refused to acknowledge that the American election system and election processes are fair. America is going through a repeat of the 2020 election where a lot has happened and there's a lot of evidence that shows a stolen election, he said. Well, we already know that the Fed is going to roll out this FedNow coin in the spring of next year they've already announced this and they've already said that basically to spend any money you will have to be approved through a third party meaning that the government will be between you and your bank and will determine if your purchases are approved or not So if you've done something they don't like, they could very easily say you can't spend your money if we're using this digital currency. This is coming because this is their only way out of the massive amount of debt we have. I truly believe that they're just going to wipe out all the debt, at least government debt, and start over. It's, that's the only way that it can ever be resolved, because the debt can never be paid off. They're going to have to start over. I seriously doubt they're going to let 
the whole economy crash because that would affect the entire world. No government's going to be on board with this. These governments are going to collude. They're going to come up with either a one world currency or everybody's going to have their own digital currency, but it's going to be a do-over. Like I said, it's the only way they have to get out of this mess we're in. Well, we all see the writing on the wall with the economy, and what are you doing to protect yourself going forward? Silver and gold historically have always held their value. This is a good way to hedge your financial security in the future. You can go to Silver Gold Bowl to buy gold, silver, platinum, and other products with over 286,000 five-star reviews. This is where I get my silver from. Silver is the most popular precious metal to invest in as the cost per ounce is dramatically lower than other metals. Buying silver online is a smarter, more reliable way to diversify your financial portfolio. Additionally, investing in physical silver and gold are the only assets that are completely free of counterparty risk and have historically held their purchasing power. For more information or to purchase your silver or gold, you can visit my website, BehindTheLinePodcast.com and follow the link to SilverGoldBowl.com. Protect your financial future today. On Tuesday, scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory announced that they have, for the first time, achieved net energy gain in a controlled fusion experiment. We have taken the first tentative steps towards a clean energy source that could revolutionize the world, Jill Ruby, administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration, said in a press conference Tuesday. The triumph comes courtesy of the National Ignition Facility at LLNL in San Francisco. This facility has long tried to master nuclear fusion, a process that powers the sun and other stars, in an effort to harness the massive amounts of energy released during the reaction, because, as Herbie points out, all the energy is clean energy. Despite decades of effort, however, there had been a major kink in these fusion experiments. The amount of energy used to achieve fusion has far outweighed the energy coming out. As part of the NIF mission, scientists had long hoped to achieve ignition where the energy output is greater than or equal to laser drive energy. Some experts have remained skeptical that such a feat was even possible with fusion reactors currently in operation, but slowly NIF pushed forward. In August last year, LNLL revealed that it had come close to the threshold by generating around 1.3 megajoules against a laser drive using 1.9 megajoules. But on December 5th, LLNL scientists say they managed to cross the threshold. They achieved ignition. All in all, this achievement is a cause for celebration. It's accumulation of decades of scientific research and incremental progress. It's a critical, albeit small, step forward to demonstrate that the type of reactor can, in fact, generate energy. Well, before you go getting all excited about clean energy or free unlimited energy, here's the reality. The NIF, which takes up the space of around three football fields at LLNL, is the most powerful 
inertial confinement fusion experiment in the world. In the center of the chamber lies a target, a holorum, or something, I can't pronounce, or cylinder-shaped device that houses a tiny capsule. The capsule, about as big as a peppercorn, is filled with isotopes of hydrogen, deuterium, and tritidium, or DT fuel for short. The NIF focuses 192 lasers at the target, creating extreme heat that produces plasma and kicks off an implosion. As a result, the DT fuel is subject to extreme temperatures and pressures, fusing the hydrogen isotopes into helium, and a consequence of the reaction is a ton of energy and the release of neutrons. You can think of this experiment as briefly simulating the conditions of a star. Hmm. How many little stars do we want around the world, and in what countries, with what safety measures, etc., etc.? The complicated part, though, is that the reaction also requires a ton of energy to start. Powering the entire laser system used by the NIF requires more than 400 megajoules. Also, we have electricity shortages right now, and this is using up a tremendous amount of electricity. But only a small percentage actually hits the peppercorn, we'll call it, with each firing of the beams. Previously, the NF had been able to pretty consistently hit the target with around 2 megajoules from its lasers. But last week, for the first time, they designed this experiment so that the fusion fuel stayed hot enough, dense enough, and round enough, long enough, that it ignited. And it produced more energy than the lasers had deposited. More specifically, scientists at NIF kick-started a fusion reaction using about 2 megajoules of energy to power the lasers and were able to get about 3 megajoules out. The experiment at NIF might be transformative for research, but it won't immediately translate to a fusion energy revolution. This isn't a power generating experiment, it's a proof of concept. This is a point worth paying attention to today, especially as fusion has often been touted as a way to combat the climate crisis and reduce resilience on fossil fuels or as a salve for the world's energy problems. Construction and utilization of fusion energy pow to power homes and businesses is still a ways off, decades conservatively, and inherently reliant on technological improvements and investment in alternative energy sources, generating around 2.5 megajoules of energy when the total input from the laser system is well above 400 megajoules is of course not efficient, and in, in the case of the NIF experiments, it was one short pulse. Looking further ahead, constant, reliable, long pulses will be required if this is to become sustainable enough to power kettles, homes, or entire cities. In the grand scheme of things, the energy created from this particular experiment was only about enough to boil water in a kettle. It's a great concept. It would be really nice to have free, unlimited, clean energy, but do you honestly think the government really wants that to happen anyway? For you to have free, unlimited energy? 
they'll never allow that to happen. Even if this becomes a reality, you'll have to pay for it in some way or another. In the meantime, if you're wondering why your electric bill is going up, maybe you should ask who's paying the electric bill at these facilities where they're burning tons of electricity to conduct these experiments to boil a kettle of water. Here's some more 1984 Big Brother for you. The University of Wyoming has decided to ban a church elder from operating a table inside the student union. Raising free speech concerns, lawmakers and legal experts told the Daily Caller News Foundation. UW restricted Laramie Faith Community Church elder Todd Schmidt's ability to reserve a table in the student union after he put up a sign which identified a biological male student who is currently in the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority, the Cowboys State Daily reported. Schmidt's sign was considered discrimination and harassment because it read, God created male and female, and blank the student's name, who was a boy, is a male. Schmidt, who reportedly has preached Christianity at the school for 17 years, complied with the university's request to remove the student's name from the sign. However, he was still issued the one-year ban. Eugene Volka, a distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, told the DCNF that while universities do retain the right to regulate speech, Inside of buildings, once that space becomes a public forum, policies must be applied neutrally regardless of viewpoint. The university could try to set up some viewpoint neutral rule that applied to speech regardless of its stance on transgender issues or any other issues, but from what I understand it sounds like this speech was targeted in large part because of its message, because of its ideological position, and that it is unconstitutional in this type of limited public forum. Huh. Apparently it's ideological to talk about biological science. Interesting. To add to this, Merriam-Webster Dictionary has expanded its definition of female to include having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. This is the insanity we live in. People are totally confused about who they are, what they are, and biological science. It's seriously time for Prozac to be put in the water system. Well, the liberal public school system continues to take the hits, especially in California, Los Angeles, a house party allegedly involving strippers and high school choir students has drawn the attention of not only concerned parents, but also the police in Southern California. A photo making rounds on social media showed a group of shirtless men playfully flexing at a party. In the other photo, also on social media, a group of students appeared to sing carols in front of a holiday-themed setup. For officials with the Claremont Unified School District, 
as well as parents of the high school students, the allegations of male strippers making grand entrances around underage teens were no laughing matter. On Friday, an emergency meeting was held to discuss the allegations surrounding the party. Many of the parents are calling for school board president Stephen Lanusa to resign from his post. Lanusa was apparently the host of the party. Gabriel Lozano's daughter is in the choir at Claremont High School. The dad was not happy with what allegedly went down at the party. According to parents who spoke at the meeting, the choir students were asked to perform at a Christmas party at Lanusa's home. The school board president is accused of offering money to the choir kids if they stayed late to help clean up after the party. A parent who spoke during the meeting said her 16-year-old son stayed at Lanusa's home for four hours. The mom said her son didn't feel he could or should leave since a district school board member asked him to stay. The school board did not announce any formal action after Friday's meeting. The day before the emergency meeting took place, the district said it received reports of inappropriate conduct by adults toward a few high school choir students who were performing at the off-campus private party on Saturday evening. Claremont Unified School District did not specify who was suspected of making the inappropriate conduct. The school district said in a statement that the Claremont Police Department is now investigating the photos and allegations. Unbelievable. What is with these people? What is with these politicians, school board members, people in positions of authority that do things like this, that think it's okay? I don't understand how these idiots become leaders in these very important positions. What's hilarious to me is if you go to the Claremont Unified School District website and click on the Board of Education, they've removed Mr. Lanusa's picture and position from the board. They don't show the president on here anymore, just the vice president, the clerk, and two adult members. But uh, Mr. Lanusa has been scrubbed of the page. Interesting, they're always looking to cover their ass when something like this happens. Furthermore, they removed his uh, information page, but if you Google his name, it still comes up and you can read the what it was. If you actually click on the link to read the whole thing, of course it says that there's uh, it's there's an error. It's been removed, but it says he was a classroom teacher who had been the technology coordinator at a science magnet technology academy school in San Bernardino County. A teacher for over 30 years, he also developed a math and science curriculum for the NASA STEP program. Apparently, he likes male strippers as well. Well, looking into this further, apparently he resigned Saturday, December 10th, amid the allegations. And uh, there was also information that uh, parents said the students were exposed to scantily clad male dancers dressed as elves and a dirty Santa, while some of the kids were offered alcohol. They were offered an open bar and to socialize with half-naked men, the dirty Santa who made disgusting comments to our children, parent Gabriel Lozano told CBS Los Angeles. 
As I said before, police are investigating the allegations. And hopefully this dirtbag will be charged. And looking further into this guy, he is gay, of course. He's 62, or at least he was at the time of this particular article. This was October. He's been an elementary school teacher for 35 years. Gee, I wonder what else this guy has done in his 35 years of teaching little kids. In 1987, he guided 6th graders in East Los Angeles before spending the next year at a district in Canoga Park. He then found a permanent home at Gerald A. Smith Tech Academy in Bloomington, where he had been teaching elementary students for the past 33 years. He and his husband, Glenn, a doctor at Kaiser Fontana, have been together 36 years and married for 14. They have three grown adopted sons. It's just disgusting that uh, uh, that this guy would expose these kids to this stuff. Lanusa is a proponent of the educational school of thought that advocates for the teaching of the whole child. I bet. Just like the rest of the government in this country, our public school system is broken. They are exposing our kids to a bunch of garbage instead of just teaching what needs to be taught, the basics. Our kids are not going to be able to compete on the world stage with these other countries because our educational system is more concerned about social issues and all this other weird crap that goes on forcing this propaganda down our kids' throats I don't know why anybody would keep their kids in a public school system that functions like this. And more Big Brother from the U.S. Transportation Safety Administration. They've adopted facial recognition scanning systems at 16 major airports around the U.S. and are planning to bring these scanning systems to airports around the country in 2023. The technology raises questions and concerns about individual privacy and how the use of the technology will expand over time. The Washington Post first reported the TSA had been quietly testing facial recognition scanners that scan a traveler's ID and compares it against a live scan of that traveler's face in an airport security line. The facial recognition systems won't easily be fooled by changes in hairstyle or facial hair, but the TSA will still post human agents to double-check the machine scans. The TSA also said the facial recognition plan it's currently working with entails immediately discarding the photo scan after the individual passenger has been verified. Scanning and match is made and immediately overwritten at the travel document checker podium, said Jason Lim, who helps run the TSA's facial recognition program. We keep neither the live photo nor the photo of the ID. Ah, uh, sure. Despite saying the facial recognition scans are immediately discarded, the Washington Post reported the TSA acknowledged retaining scan data for up to 24 months <laughs> to evaluate the effectiveness of the scanning systems. So, lie. Furthermore, the TSA's interests in facial recognition technology are not limited to just this particular system that scans and compares a traveler's ID and live photo. 
The agency is testing out another system where travelers don't even have to present their ID because the system can simply scan a live image of their face and compare it to an existing government database of passport photos. In his interview with the Washington Post, Lim said none of the facial recognition systems the TSA rolling out are mandated. Those who do not feel comfortable will still have to present their ID, but they can tell the officer they do not want their photo taken and the officer will turn off the live camera. TSA should also have signs posted informing travelers of their right to refuse having their face scanned. Albert Fox Kahn, who founded the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, STOP, was more skeptical of Lim's claims that travelers could maintain their privacy rights. What we often see with these biometric programs is they are only optional in the introductory phases, and over time we see them become standardized and nationalized and eventually compulsory. Khan told the Washington Post, there is no place more coercive to ask people for their consent than an airport. Well, you know that's going to happen. They're definitely going to require this. And at some point, you couple this with the digital currency or VAX card that's rolling out. And again, if they don't like something you've done or spent your money on then maybe you just won't be able to get through the airport to get to your airplane. And when they compared this program to China's program, that's exactly what's going on in China. You've got automated systems, scanning systems, and people show up at the train station or airport, and their little social score is not where it needs to be, or they've done something that the government didn't like, or maybe it's just some kind of error because, you know, computers never make errors, do they? Especially if this thing is run on a Windows program. So you'll show up to go on your trip or go to wherever you need to go and, sorry, you're not allowed to pass. And there's nobody there to talk to to fix the problem. This is our future. Iran. Remember when Iran was made a member of the UN Women's Rights Body? <laughs> oh, well, they've been removed from that now. Of course, they're blaming the U.S. And you've got all these protests going on in Iran because the kids have had it with the ridiculous regime that's in charge over there. But just last week... A group of 1,200 university students were struck down by food poisoning the night before a wave of anti-regime protests were set to be held throughout the country. Students at Karzami and Ark Universities experienced vomiting, severe body aches, and hallucinations, the National Student Union claimed on Thursday. At least four other universities reported similar outbreaks. Uninfected students are reportedly boycotting the cafeterias in response while officials are citing waterborne bacteria as the cause of the troubling symptoms, the student union posted that the population was intentionally poisoned. Our past experiences of similar incidents at the Isfahan University negates the authorities' reason for this mass food poisoning, the group wrote on Telegram. 
Some university clinics closed down or ran out of supplies to treat dehydration, fueling speculation that the outbreak was planned to stifle the three-day strike in response to the Iranian regime's claims to have shut down the controversial morality police, Arab News reported. Formerly known as the Ghost-e-Ershad, or Guidance Patrol, the Morality Police was established in 2006 to enforce the country's strict dress code for women. Ah, women's rights. What a joke the UN is for appointing these people to that board. What an absolute joke. Dating back to the aftermath of the 1979 revolution, the dress code requires all women to wear hijab head coverings in public. The group came under fire after the death of 22-year-old student Masa Amini in police custody in September. An aspiring lawyer, Amini, was allegedly arrested because her hijab revealed some of her hair. Amini's unexplained death gave way to women-led mass protests across the country. In addition to large street demonstrations, well-known figures like actress Hemaga Ghazani and Katuri Riahi are sharing images of themselves in public without headscarves. During Iran's brief World Cup showing last month, players and fans even refused to sing the country's national anthem. But despite the widespread movement, the Iranian regime has shown little sign of buckling to public pressure. Initial reports that the morality police were abolished were quickly followed by clarifications that the decision could not be officially confirmed. This country is a absolute pain in the ass to every country in this world. They are just a problem. That regime needs to be overthrown. Those students need to... Those young people in that country need to rise up and take control of that country. There is no place in this world for their policies and the way they treat their population. No place. On top of this, a UN nuclear watchdog will visit Tehran this week. The International Atomic Energy Agency will head to Tehran on December 18th. The visit targets addressing outstanding safeguards issues over traces of uranium found at three undeclared Iranian sites in 2019. There is as yet no indication that the IAEA will be investigating Iran's recent announcement that it is enriching uranium at 60% purity, one technical step away from weapons-grade material. Ah, but they were just going to use it for medical and power, remember? Remember when Obama told us that? Didn't anybody not see this coming if these fools get a nuclear weapon look out they won't be afraid to use it the government of the netherlands has announced plans to force the sale and closure of three thousand farms in order to meet strict new environmental guidelines put in place by the european union Although the purchases will apparently be made on generous terms of up to 120% of the 
farm's value, the Dutch government has already made clear that purchases will be mandated if required. There is no better offer coming, Christine van der Waal, Minister for Nature and Nitrogen, told Dutch members of Parliament last week. Compulsory purchases would be made with pain in the heart, the government claimed. Dutch farmers have been in revolt for years over the government's plans to ostensibly reduce the country's nitrogen emissions in line with EU rules. Their ongoing protests have involved blocking highways, burning hay bales, dumping manure, and picketing outside ministers' homes. The Netherlands is the second largest exporter of agriculture in the world after the United States, exporting $111 billion in produce in 2017. A law passed by the Dutch Council of State in 2019 has meant that every activity that emits nitrogen now requires a permit. This has prevented the expansion of dairy, poultry, and pig farms, which produce large quantities of nitrogen from animal manure in the form of ammonia. It has also led to delays in the building of new homes and roads in the country. Although these recent measures are being enacted in the name of environmental protection, it's hard not to ask whether something else is going on. Once again, we see small farmers being driven out of business, but food must still be produced, and it will be just by much larger corporate players which can afford to comply with whatever measures governments may enact. The corporatization of agriculture is a trend, especially pronounced in the United States, where mega players like JBS and Tyson already have a stranglehold over agriculture. It is also an increasingly global phenomenon. The U.S. corn subsidy system initially created to protect domestic producers when the European agricultural system recovered after World War I has become a series of massive taxpayer-funded kickbacks for a handful of corporations that now control the grain supply. Critics of the system, like writer Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, have noted how the corporate industrial system of agricultural is an essential prop of America's military-industrial complex with huge implications at home and abroad. The Dutch small farmers themselves are well aware of the fact that their loss is the corporation's gain. Many of the farmers have explicitly framed their protests as protests against the Great Reset, as have their political supporters in the Netherlands and abroad. Naturally, the corporate media has been quick to dismiss such notions as a conspiracy theory and a white supremacist one at that. Here's how Salon described them. According to those narratives, new regulations are part of a globalist Great Reset intent on imposing liberal authoritarianism across the world. Global elites, in this view, are orchestrating a food crisis in order to subdue unruly populations, and Dutch farmers will be displaced to make room for new immigrants in a literal recapitulation of the Great Replacement conspiracy theory shared by European and American white supremacists. The truth is that the Great Reset and the plan to transform global food production and consumption in the coming decades is neither a conspiracy nor a theory. It's all about control and the easiest way to control a population is with the food supply. You can't have small independent farmers controlling the food supply. You've got to have corporations that are in line with the government. So that is exactly what's happening. And here's the weirdest story of the week. A two-year-old boy in western Kazis district of Uganda 
survived an attack from a wild hippopotamus after it swallowed him and then threw him back up. The boy was playing at home in Katwe Kabatoro Town Council on Sunday when the hippo attacked him, swallowing him head first, according to local police reports cited by Newsweek. Locals saw the attack and threw stones at the hippo, causing the semi-aquatic mammal to regurgitate the young boy and dash back to Lake Edward, which was half mile away from the boy's home. The boy, reportedly identified as Paul Yiga by local news stations, was returned to his parents after being treated at a hospital where he also received a rabies vaccine. Despite being attacked by one of the most dangerous animals on the planet, which kill an estimated 500 people annually, the boy suffered only minor injuries. Well... Your week couldn't be that bad. You weren't eaten by a hippopotamus. Thank you for listening to Net News Network Headline News, brought to you by the Behind the Line Podcast. For more, you can listen to us at the Behind the Line Podcast.com or right here on Net News Network. We can also be found on Facebook, YouTube, Truth Social, Parlor, Gab, Twitter, Telegram, Reddit, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and anywhere else your favorite podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe and share.